shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, it's time again, everybody, for a new episode, the only show that takes you inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and I got to tell you, I mean, last week we had a great show, and, uh, you know, some of the comments that came on EMS1 about, uh, you know, the things that we were talking about, uh, you know, 90 seconds as far as uh, response time, or not using lights and sirens, what are we going to save 90 seconds? And, of course, that was taken out of context. A lot of people thought we were talking about uh, response. We were really talking about transport. But before we go any further, let's go ahead and bring in the great agitator kelly grayson kelly how are you i'm changing my name to egg beater because i'm an excellent agitator that's right man i mean i think that works out man but we, uh, we, we people angered lo- some people man people lost their minds didn't they <laughs> jesus don't, don't take away my lights and sirens man you just don't know what we go through right you know, one of the things, though, I mean, they were really great points, though, and I think it was just there a were. misunderstanding because there were people who didn't listen to the show. And, uh, you know, you and I were talking about uh, being good clinicians and mm-hmm. being able to do what we needed to do in the back of the ambulance without running hot to a hospital. And we do have requirements that we have in place that we, you know, we will turn the lights on if we need to. But uh, yeah. I ha- th- those are very few and far between. Exactly. We, you know... My position has always been is that we will we will do more good uh, with providing good medical care than we will by driving fast, um, and, and it's always been that way, and probably will continue to be that way. Um, I, I don't have anything against the use of lights and sirens. I just have everything against routine use of lights and sirens. Right. Uh, we shouldn't do it all that often, and, and for for many EMS systems, it's it's the default rather than the exception. I agree. Well, let's go ahead and jump into this show. Uh, Let's go ahead and get into the news and hit us with our first news story. This one comes out of Selma Township. Sad news in that Selma Township EMS has been eliminated. To avoid bankruptcy, uh, the Township Board eliminated their EMS system last Wednesday, voted to end their EMS services at the fire department. Board said that the EMS was service was put into place about two years ago, and since then it's put them $150,000 in the hole. So now there's no longer 24/7 EMS personnel at the fire department, and a, another service will be covering Selma Township from Cadillac rather than uh, rather than Selma Township, uh, which increases response times uh, probably 20 minutes or so. I, you know, you gotta wonder. What did these people, what did the, the township board think was going to happen? Did they think EMS uh, was a, uh, a money-generating uh, venture uh, rather than a needed public service? I mean, personally, I think $150,000 over two years is actually pretty darn good yeah. um, if that's all they're in the hole. Right. You have to ask, what's the cost of doing business? What's the cost of, of providing quality medical care to your community? Apparently, they, don't, they think that uh, $75,000 a year is too much. Well, I mean, but you don't know where, where that uh, community is, though. I mean, we talk about $150,000 in some, you know, that, that's a drop in a bucket in New York City. But compared yeah. to other cities, $150,000 could be a lot of wood, you know. But I, I think that this is kind of the, the, the climate that we're in. You know, there was a report that came out this morning that I read on, on the Kaiser Health News, and that comes out of Kaiser Permanente in California, which is a big uh, insurance company. And they're now setting dates for when they want to move away from 
fee for service and they want to move to value-based purchasing and what's the value going to be and we're going to have to be able to show the value in the services that we run and more and more in between now and 2018 we're going to see a lot more EMS agencies having some challenges if they're not going to be able to get that reimbursement in that they need. And I think that this is just kind of a tip of the iceberg, Kelly, and I think this is starting a domino flow. But uh, the, the story here quotes uh, several concerned town uh, community members, uh, you know, worrying about EMS response time and such. But, you know, as of yet, it looks like none of those community members have uh, chosen to back up their concern with, with support for more tax money which is probably what's going to be necessary to keep Selma Township to provide EMS systems, EMS services to Selma Township. So we hope that gets, gets resolved and we hope that the uh, community can continue to, to have EMS care or have it restored at some point. But more and more, you know, we're going to have, people are going to have to learn that you know, this is a service that's not just going to uh, pay for itself. If you want EMS care, you're going to have to pay for it in some way. Right. So. I agree. Well, let me go ahead and bring you my story. My story comes out of Tucson, Arizona, strike authorized by Arizona EMS union members. Southwest Ambulance Board has permission to go on strike if necessary as negotiations with Royal Metro continue over pension pay. You know, this isn't really over, uh, you know, pay, uh, hourly pay. This is really over retirement or pension pay where Royal Metro, um, where the union says that Royal Metro owes them about $8 million and where Royal Metro says that they don't. And now we've gotten to a point where the union members are saying that, you know, they'll strike if they need to. You know, these guys are professional caregivers. And, uh, you know, they, they're very poignantly in their, uh, in their news reports say that we live in the city. Uh, this is our community, and we certainly want to be able to ensure that 911 calls are met. You know, but I think that getting back to the table and, you know, making the determination of, of where the breakdown is avoids that. And, you know, to to threaten a strike means that there's not good communication going on. No. And when it comes to 911, when it comes to first responders, they've got to be on the street. You know, Royal Metro says, you know what, if they go on strike, I guess according to their collective bargaining agreement, they got to give them 10 days before they go on strike. Royal Metro is saying we have a contingency plan if that happens. Right there, they're losing. It's not about a contingency plan. It's getting back to the table and giving the workers, uh, you know, the feeling that you're listening to what they're saying. And, Kelly, i got to tell you, uh, you know, if these guys go out on strike, you know, it's going to be a, a precedent that uh, I don't think we should set. No, it's it, and it's not. This is this is the nuclear option, like any other nuclear option. It's it's the the last resort that that probably kills the people who launched it, uh, just as much as it uh, affects your enemy. You know, the fact that rural metro is saying they have a contingency plan in place. You know, that's translated to we'll we'll pull in scabs from our other operations. I would imagine uh, that doesn't that doesn't uh, bode well for uh, for resolving this conflict. You'd think that, that they could sit together and, and hash out their differences, and, and they're not asking for more money, as the union rep put out, you know, and, and that $8 million in, in pension funds is, is the, you know, that's the sweetener to, to ensure uh, a career workforce in EMS, you know, people who will, will stay stay with this uh, profession and, and retire in it, uh, rather than just be a profession of moderately skilled journeymen. Would that more more EMS agencies had a uh, robust retirement program to encourage that sort of thing? You'd think that Rural Metro would, would kind of uh, welcome that rather than, than stand in the way of it. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about 800 plus employees that work for Southwest Ambulance, and I got to tell mm-hmm. you, 
when I worked for Rural Metro, I had the opportunity to go down the Southwest and do some training down there. Very class organization, you know, mm-hmm. very, very high on uh, patient care, uh, you know, it, just an impressive organization. And I hope that Rural Metro can get back to the table and avoid this, uh, you know, this debacle if, uh, you know, keep it from happening. Nobody, nobody wins in a strike. Exactly. Nobody wins at all. Everybody yes. winds up with the most of all the the public we serve, but uh, the, both sides are going to come out of it with black eyes and bruises, uh, and it's just not productive. All right, what do you got so, for us next? Uh, speaking of, of rural metro and the cities they serve, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, whose contract with rural metro is ending soon, uh, just won their appeal to to choose Paramedics Plus in their uh, as their new ambulance provider. There was some controversy and and uh, lawsuit levied by uh, one of the uh, one of the competing companies uh, stating that Fitchin Associates, who at Sioux Falls had contracted to structure their RFP, unfairly weighted it toward Paramedics Plus. There were four companies who were vying for the contract. MedStar Paramedic Ambulance uh, out of uh, Brandon, South Dakota, uh, AMR, Rural Metro, and MedStar, and Paramedics Plus. Paramedics Plus, yeah. Paramedics Plus. And uh, Paramedics Plus won the RFP. And the the owner of MedStar uh, cried foul and said uh, it was the request for uh, proposals was weighted unfairly toward Paramedics Plus by Fitch and Associates. And the court didn't agree. So now Sioux, uh, Sioux Falls is uh, is going to go with uh, Paramedics Plus for their ambulance provider. And and we wish them well. Looks like they're, they've got some, some safeguards into place requiring a new ambulance fleet and a number of other things so uh hopefully they um uh, they're happy with their their new provider and, and the folks in south uh in uh, sioux falls are uh, are well served right i mean so. paramedics plus is uh you know uh, well-known same. quality organization right and they they have a lot of big contracts man you talk about pinellas county one of the biggest mm-hmm. public utility models in the united states yeah you know and it, these guys are from east texas medical center and and paramedics plus is uh you know, is an offshoot from East Texas Medical Center, and and uh, it's a really good organization. Um, you know, I almost had the opportunity to work with them a couple times, and uh, to be on uh, you know the, the the receiving end if they won some RFPs, which didn't happen. But uh, you know, they the, you know, but when it comes to uh, private EMS, they're all having challenges right now, and and people are losing contracts and people are yep. gaining contracts. But again, you know the the. You know the the things that uh, are going to come up in an RFP. Y- y- if you're going to have challenges with them, you, you should have challenge with them, challenges with them before you bid, and, and exactly. you know just say that hey, this is not fair. Rather than wait until the bid comes out and then you go through the bid process, and then when they pick you or they don't pick you, you know you're going to yeah. cry foul. So that's kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, you know I'm I'm just glad I uh, I'm glad to be a board grown. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy happy to work for the uh, for the private that I that I work for. Uh, all private EMS agencies have their their challenges and their their strengths and their their weaknesses. It's kind of wrong to demonize them. And uh, I, of the ones that we're vying for the uh, the contract in, in uh, South Dakota, it seems that uh, all of them were reputable companies. Hopefully, Paramedics Plus will will shine and, and do well for uh, the citizens of Sioux Falls. Yeah. Let me go ahead and jump to mine, Columbus, Ohio, three hurt and Ohio ambulance rollover. Yeah, that was rough. Police say the driver of the ambulance veered into the median for unknown reasons and the vehicle overturned. And, uh, you know, anytime you hear that an ambulance is in an accident, especially when there's injuries, it kind of raises your eyebrow and gives you concern and you hope that everybody that was in that crash is okay. Um, you know, but again, it, it goes to the, 
you know, it goes to the uh, the subject of, you know, ambulances driving safe. And something happened that made this ambulance veer into the median, then caused it to flip over. But we talk about, um, you know, driving quickly. We, we talk about, uh, you know, due regard for, you know, for traffic that's uh, out on the road with us. Uh, we talk about, uh, you know, getting crazy when it comes to uh, speeding with lights and sirens <laughs> on and, you know, but we, we've just got to be able to ensure that we go home at the end of the day. And yeah. uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people get a little crazy behind the wheel of these, these ambulances and they try to drive it like it's a car. You know, it's not a car and we've got to have respect for that bigger vehicle. And uh, I'm just glad that everybody's okay in Columbus, Ohio, and, uh, you know, the, that uh, there was no fatalities. Yeah. You know, it's we, we talked last week about the the, the risk of lights and sirens and, and upset a few people and, and had many uh, nodding vigorously in agreement. But, you know, nothing we are going to do in regards to ambulance safety, better design, lighting, paint schemes, lights and sirens use, none of that is going to work until we build a safety culture within EMS. And, and, and building such a culture takes time. And, and you know, one, uh, one management principle Peter Drucker's management principle holds is, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, meaning that no matter where the leadership of an organization or agency wants to go, if unless the, the people within that agency buy into it, um, if it's contrary to their agency culture, it's never going to work. And so it's, it's going to take time and it's multifaceted. We're going to have to look at lights and sirens. We're going to have to look at ambulance uh, module design. We're going to have to look at rest and crew safety and fatigue factors, which, you know, reading between the lines here, I, I don't know, you know, just 10 at 1050 in the morning, an ambulance road runs off the road. Were they, were they tired? Had they been working all night? Who knows? Um, yeah. I mean, how um, many hours in a row? And yeah. yeah, but again, it begs the question, 24 hour shifts that we need to start getting rid of them, you know, yes, and we yes. don't know what, we don't know if, if, if being tired was part of this, uh, this accident, but, uh, you know, more and more, we're going to start to see that 24-hour shifts are, are you know, they're, uh, you know, they were put in place initially because, you know, the call volume was, you know, how many calls, uh, you know, how many calls in a 24-hour in shift? They were getting like, you know, six, seven calls. But now yeah. as we start to move into uh, more busier types of systems, mm-hmm. you know, I looked the other day uh, or in my system, one of our trucks hit 18 calls in a 24-hour period. Yeah. I- I'm not happy about that. I'm sure yeah. they're not happy about that. And we're trying to keep those call numbers, those those yeah. that volume down for them because you can't run 18 calls in a 24-hour period. It's crazy. No. And not and not uh, do... Uh good service and good care uh, to your uh, your patients yeah you just can't do it you know i don't know that 24-hour shifts uh, as a whole should be eliminated but we do need to start looking looking critically at it and uh, i would i would even favor something where where the the length of a shift be tied somewhat to uhu you know if your uhu is below a certain a certain benchmark you know okay 24-hour shifts are viable but above that uh, they're considered unsafe and so on and so forth um you know i think that would be the uh a a good compromise Um, but uh basically if you don't know what uhu is it's unit hour utilization and it really it goes to you know the volume versus the hours that you work and uh, but i I agree with you i think it should be volume based you know if you're going to run 18 calls in a 24-hour period you know maybe maybe hour shifts yeah maybe the cutoff is is nine hours you know 12 hour shift you know eight calls nine calls uh but you shouldn't be working, uh, you know, 24 hours in a row with that 
type of uh, call volume. But anyway, yeah. let's go ahead and transition. Let's go ahead and move to our clinical yeah. issue. And I'm really excited to to bring this to you. And, uh, you know, one of the things we were kind of talking about today in our organization. But, Kelly, let me ask you a question. If we think about the most important uh, skill or the most important job that we have every day, what do you think it is? Um, just off the top of my head, I'd, I'd say assessment. Uh, yeah, well, that's a good one, but not you, you really. can't. You don't know what you can do for. You don't know what to do, and and until you know uh, what's wrong with the patient, and it all comes from assessment. But, but now that I've I've had a chance to consider it, uh, I'd, I'd throw another one out there: documentation. Documentation. Ding, yes. ding, 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 ding. You're the big winner. I got to tell you, this is one of the things that I think we have challenges with. In, in our career field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk about that this is a legal record. We talk about that we have to, you know, stand behind it in court. We talk about that this is where our billing practices come from. And there's a lot of challenges with some of the things that we do with documentation. We don't uh, fill out the, the records the right way. Spelling is a big issue. Uh, another big thing that uh, comes from it is, you know, people that don't uh, really do what the, they're saying that they do. Uh, how many times do you see, you know, two sets of vital signs of uh, 120 over 80, a pulse of 80, and respirations of 16, you know, three minutes apart? You know, so I, I think there's some challenges with documentation, yeah. and, and I'm interested to hear your take on this. I mean, you're out there every day, you're mm-hmm. writing these charts. You know, what do you think the challenge is? Well, you know, I, and I have colleagues who have 100% success rates on IVs, for example, you know, and, and our tracking from that is, is purely self-reported. It's from, from our documentation. Uh, apparently, I've got some coworkers who are infallible when it comes to sticking an IV in a moving ambulance. Uh, they, they never miss. Um, they hit it on the first time every time. But when you, when you see figures like that, it obviously tells you that someone's not very uh, honest in their documentation. One of the things that I think we, we all, no one wants to believe that they are poor at documentation. But what I don't think many of us appreciate is all of the common errors that we, we make in documenting our care. And, and those errors go, go unreported or unnoticed because they haven't been subjected to that Darwinian process uh, uh, called a courtroom. And, and all too many of us discover that uh, our documentation sucks when we're called to justify what we did uh, in front of 12 people who are too ignorant to know how to get out of jury duty. And, uh, <laughs> that, and, and that's the thing. You don't want, you don't want to know, you don't want to find out that you messed up documenting or you left someone uh, and left a plaintiff's attorney an opening to question your skill and your ability and your motivation as a provider right. in the written report that you did. You want to know that beforehand, uh, before it's your livelihood and your certification on the line. You know, we, we suck at it. And there, right. There's a, a number of elements that we, we do poorly that, that Gene Gandy and I have covered in articles in the past, but uh, you know, you're a, you're a manager. What are the most common mistakes you see among your employees among, uh, or as far as documentation goes? You know, one of the things that we get from our billing department a lot is that there's, uh, you know, the names aren't spelt right or that the Social Security's numbers aren't right or the date of births aren't right. But I got to tell you as well, and been a, being a paramedic and been on the street for a lot of years... Sometimes people are not giving you the right social security numbers, mm-hmm. and sometimes they're not giving you the right uh, birth dates, and sometimes they're not giving you the right spelling of their names because they're trying to get out of getting a bill. 
And, uh, you know, that's just the reality of the job. And, you know, the challenges that we'll get from the billing office will say, well, this is not what we have in our system for this person. You know, you need to change it. Well, no, I don't need to change it because it's not my record to change. Yeah. Uh, if, if this is what the patient told, you know, the, the paramedic or the EMT, and, and this is what their Social Security number is because they told us that, I can't go back and put your Social Security number that you have in there. Yeah. You know, that that's really falsification of a record. So, mm-hmm. but... There's other things, too. I mean, sometimes when we talk about, you know, filling out the chart that the way it's supposed to be filled out or who's supposed to do the assessment or when vital signs are supposed to be retaken. But I just think that this is one of the, the weaknesses in our career field because we constantly hear about documentation issues. And, and this is what pays the bills. I yeah. mean, this is where we get the money in to, you know, to pay the salaries, but yet there's such a disregard for such an important skill, such an important part of our job. Well, we have, you know, I, I think part of our problems in documentation currently are, are uh, uh, a reflection of, of our educational system as, as a whole. Call me an old fogey, but uh, I've noticed in the last 20 years, I'm writing, reading, writing, spelling, grammar are, are apparently no longer a priority in the American educational system because, quite frankly, Johnny can't read. You, you get so many kids out here that can barely communicate without text speak and emoticons right. um, and, and have a hard time stringing two, uh, two coherent sentences together. But but you touched on something else that, that I think you know, a failure that's that's system related in that most of our our uh, documentation critique and, and QI uh, is all centered toward billing demographics reimbursement and that that uh, that um, minimum data set it's all about the things that that really are not going to make that big a difference in justifying your care and defending you in court they're all about the you know the they're they're all about us getting paid, which keeps the doors open and keeps the wheels turning, but we pay scant attention to the quality of our documentation as it relates to the care we provided. And you know, I I, I have the same thing here. When I get a uh, when I get a a, a buck slip or, or whatever uh, an email notification of a problem in my documentation, invariably it was about stretcher certification or or demographics or address or something going on. Yeah, medical necessity and and that sort of thing. And rarely, if ever, was it about the the quality of my narrative. As a matter of fact, if if I get something kicked back, uh, it was because something was flagged in the the computer. Uh, I did a certain procedure and and X didn't match Y or whatever. And the person doing the QI never (laughs) bothered to read the narrative. If we don't expect people to write good narratives, I mean, if we don't read the narratives, how can we expect people to write good narratives? Right. You know, we, we I, I've got stuff kicked back because I didn't, uh, one of our current kicks is uh, if you're going to administer pain medication, you must document a pain scale. Yet, we have I have far too many patients that don't understand a, a Wong-Baker face or a, or a quantitative 1 to 10 scale. Uh, and in those instances, I, I document uh, objectively or in patient direct quotes from the patient things about the the severity of their pain. But it, it won't fit into a one to ten scale, or it won't fit on a Wong Baker face. But the fact that those things get sent back to me when the documentation was already there tells me that uh, we, you know, in, in QI in general, we don't do much. Uh, we don't care much about how well people re- write their reports. That is until we're burned in court on them. 
Yeah, and you bring up a good point. There's two. There's two things that I want to touch on here that you said. The first one is, uh, you know, going to court and uh, you know getting grilled on your chart. And then the first time that happens, I guarantee you, you're going to be writing better charts. But that that wasn't where I wanted yeah. to go. My two questions that I have for you. The first one is, how important is it for us to train the billing office people to know what we're doing? Because we have a lot of times people who are certified in medical coding and medical billing that don't have any other medical training trying to decipher a narrative or saying, you didn't put this in here. Oh, it's right here. Oh, now I see it. And I think that's one of the big challenges, too, I want you to touch on as well because you kind of said it. This the generation now that's coming into the workforce, you know, the, the texting and the emojis, as you mentioned, is that causing us to have challenges with our documentation? I don't I don't know so much that uh, that the the lack of, of writing and communication skills among uh, uh, newer EMTs in our workforce really contributes that much to errors in billing documentation. Although if you wanted to paint really, really broad strokes, you could say, well, you know, if you're too lazy to write out a sentence instead of using a, an abbreviation, then you're too lazy to get a social security number and, a, and an insurance number. LOL, <laughs> man. LOL. 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 Yeah, raffle. Um, I just can't. Uh, I won't go that far. But yes, I, I do think there's a disconnect between the billers and coders and, and the people actually providing care. Um, one thing is, is we, we do... Um, I think we do a poor job of, of teaching new guys who are documenting uh, what actually is medical necessity or not. And, and there's, there's a lot of myths and fallacies out there. We get some guys who just take the, the path of least resistance and they just write something that won't get their ticket kicked back. And, and whether it's actually factual or not is of secondary concern to them. I, I don't think we do a good job of, of stressing the importance uh, of uh, accurate documentation in that regard. So what do you think, man? How do we fix this problem? I mean, because it seems that documentation is always an issue that's on the forefront of every single organization. And, you know, is it that, you know, more time has to be spent in, in learning the English language and learning grammar again, in, in learning, uh, uh, you know, spelling again? Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but you know, I'd be interested to know your opinion. Well, first of all, and, and I'm, I'm going to rile some people up with this. I think college education needs to be a, a needs to be a fundamental fundamental part of, of EMS education. I think EMS needs to go to degree programs, and we need to have requirements such as technical writing components or technical writing classes as part of your EMS degree requirement. Now. That's probably not feasible for EMTs, uh, for EMT level, but for paramedics uh, in the future. I think some things like technical writing and statistics and, and you know, just a broader education beyond what to do for a patient for the next 15 minutes, that sort of thing. If nothing else, it makes you a more well-rounded person and, and really elevates your bullcrap filter. Right. You can spot BS when it happens. You, you know, at the very least, you learn to think a little more critically. You know, you, you would hope that college education can do that, although, uh, you know, it's been 15 years since I was in college full-time, and from what I hear, it's more about indoctrination than education these days. <laughs> but right. I mean, um, you're right. you would hope that uh, you would hope that it that it can do that. But uh, personally, I think that, you know, at least a technical writing component and, and more, more documentation practice in EMT class uh, is, is integral to the whole thing. Uh, you know, the current EMS education guidelines 
pay very little attention to the importance of documentation. There's not a whole lot of practice writing reports in class, and neither did the old EMS curricula uh, pay much attention to it either. Uh, all too many of our guys, the first time they ever write a report on a patient is when they're doing it for real on a real patient, right. uh, and that's unconscionable. You know, so. one of the things that I think that needs to be more on the forefront of everybody's mind is they need to be able to take pride in their documentation. Just like they take pride in their patient assessments and just like they take pride in their IV and intubation skills, a good written chart really defines who you are as a clinician. That's right. You are what you write. Exactly. Not only uh, are you proving that you're a great paramedic or great EMT by Mm -hmm. by documenting a great record it's right there to show that the 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 care that you gave you thought that it was this this was your working diagnosis you finally came to a diagnosis and i I get away from that whole paramedics don't diagnose thing because we do and we have to now start to take pride in that record because if you go to court and if you now uh, have your record challenged, and let's say you're, you're made a, a fool of, and the people who are out there that have been to court, that have been on the other side of that, uh, you know, that uh, cross-examination, that you, know, that you understand what happens. Now all your charting has come into question. All your charting is a challenge. And uh, you, know, you really have to kind of look at it. But Kelly, I think we got a clinical issue here. I think, I think we do. And, and you know, it's... One of the, I think we do have a clinical issue. You know, one of the, the best books I've ever written on the subject is sadly out of print. It's, uh, it's by Denise Graham called The Missing Protocol, A Legally Defensible Report. But in it, she says that the pre-hospital patient care record creates or destroys credibility uh, of the pre-hospital care provider. And all too often, I think the level of our documentation trends toward the uh, destroys credibility side of the equation. Um, doesn't matter how good a provider you are, if you can't write and paint a good patient picture and and, and a uh, picture of the care you provided and how the patient responded to it, it's all for naught. Because quite often, you know, most of the 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 only interaction the the ER doc and and most of the nursing staff have with you is is through your written report, particularly in larger systems. And if the only the only interaction or the only idea they have of EMS is, is reading the poorly spelled, grammatically incorrect, disjointed word salad that you scribble down on a sheet. Why do you think they think we're a bunch of idiots? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really great point, man. Yeah. So, yeah, but we'd like to hear what you guys think. What's, well, I, don't know what's that, I don't know that we want to hear. I mean, after last week... <laughs> No, I'm oh, just kidding. Man, we yeah, do want to hear. We want robust. We want robust and vigorous debate. Yes, here. we do. Um, yes, we do. I ain't, I ain't scared. I ain't scared at all. So tell us what you think. Chime in on the discussion. What do you think our biggest deficiencies are in in documentation? What can we do to change it? Email us at the show at ems1.com. And for co-host Chris Sevalero and myself, I'm Kelly Grayson. And thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.